This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. All right, so today for our hot question of the day, we're talking about the preferred option for a George Massey Tunnel replacement because Metro Vancouver mayors are going to be deciding on that today. We'll have full coverage coming up this afternoon. But we want to know what is most important for you? What is the most important factor? Do you want to say get it built quickly or get it built cheaply because those two things are not necessarily related to each other. You might want it quickly, but it's going to cost you more. You might want it cheaper. They might have to spend a little more time doing it and making this decision and deciding what is the cheapest option. So which one is more important? Check out our hot question of the day. It's at CKNW or at SimiSarah980. You can also email me, Simi at CKNW.com or use our buzz line 604-331-2899. Well, we keep hoping that at some point we're going to get ride hailing in this province. But, you know, we've talked about it for years. Then I started to feel a slight glimmer of hope that maybe by the end of this year, but now with this latest news from the city of Vancouver, I just don't know. So the latest meeting of Vancouver City Council got underway about an hour or so ago. Right now, they're actually discussing potential bylaws that ride hailing drivers would have to adhere to before they can actually hit the road and pick up driver or pick up uh, riders in the city of Vancouver. So among these proposals, the need for a business license. Ah, but here's the thing, that business license would only be valid in the city of Vancouver, even though there is another category for business licenses that does allow all sorts of companies to buy like what it's like a they call it like a mobile metro vancouver business license meaning that you can operate all over metro vancouver for some reason they're not putting this in that category no no they're making it just a city of vancouver license they're also considering a congestion tax of 30 cents for each pickup and then 30 cents for each drop-off. Now, that would apply between 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. in the downtown core and in areas east of Burrard, north of 16th, west of Clark. So just certain areas that congestion charge would apply. Now, Lon LeClaire is a director of transportation for the city of Vancouver, and he explained to the council meeting just a few moments ago the whole rationale behind this congestion charge. We're trying to discourage uh, too many um vehicles from circulating in a congested area hoping for a pickup and so the the idea is to add a a surcharge uh, in the area and the times of day uh, when we see that congestion to encourage uh, those companies to or the op the drivers uh, to kind of be other places and uh, it's one of those things where in many cities uh, a lot of the experience is that you have a whole bunch of people in the area where you get a lot of pickup activity. All right, so that is Lon LeClaire, the Director of Transportation, speaking just moments ago at Vancouver City Council. Now, as I mentioned, that meeting is ongoing right now. One of the people attending is Ian Tostenson, the President and CEO of the lobby group that is called Ride Sharing Now for BC. So we caught up to him before he went into that meeting to talk about what the City of Vancouver is doing today. Ian, thank you very much for joining us to talk about this today. Now, you have some concerns about what the city of Vancouver is talking about today. Why is that? Well, what they're proposing, Simi, is a licensing fee per car of $155, which means that um, if, you know, Lyft or Uber has uh, a car they've approved, um, that car would attract a $155 licensing fee every single year. So in this example, if we had, say, a 1,000 cars driving through those companies, 
at say even a hundred dollars it's a hundred thousand dollars a year annually so the numbers get really big because the impact could happen in every single municipality so Surrey could do the same thing and Langley and you know Burnaby and then suddenly there's we're talking millions of dollars for a rideshare driver to operate across municipal boundaries which is the whole point of the exercise so um, we are hoping we can convince them to let TransLink is doing a study on a regional licensing fee for the entire Metro of Vancouver. And we hope that the city of Vancouver will just put this aside and let TransLink do their work and then come up with a reasonable fee that'll cover all the municipalities. Right. Now, why do you think they're doing it this way, though, Ian? Because there are those mobile business licenses that some businesses can have that allow them to operate all over Metro Vancouver. Why wouldn't we just have the same rules for these businesses? You know, I think um, I would be really surprised if the city of Vancouver uh, councillors even know about the mobile business license because they are new and, and this is part of the problem. And I think the other problem is I don't think they really understand how the ride-sharing platform works. It needs to, you know, it needs to be ubiquitous. It needs to go across um, the lines of municipalities. And so they're looking at this from a very sort of myopic Vancouver perspective as, you know, our, our city and our licensing scheme. I don't think that they really understand that the implications of what they do here could spread throughout the um, the, the uh, other parts of Metro Vancouver. So a lot of this is awareness. It's new. I mean, even when we had a sort of a preliminary meeting with the city, um, they sort of admitted, look, this is all new stuff for us. I mean, we have no authority to, to um, control taxis and ride sharing because the province has an authority now. But um, they do have the authority on things like congestion and licensing fees. So I think they're looking at this strictly from this is the city and this is what we're responsible for. I don't think they're considering the implications across across the regions. Right. Because if they do this, uh, and, you know, we heard that Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum has said that he would deny business licenses to the rideshare companies in, in his jurisdiction. Doesn't that mean then that other cities could deny business licenses? Well, it turns out on that note, he can't do that. He can't prevent them from operating. So he has to put a, a business license scheme in place. He can't override that. But... What's becoming apparent now is that um, the municipalities appear to be able to be able to charge whatever they want to charge. This is such a, uh, you know, I mean, this goes on and on, right? I mean, we got through all the provincial stuff, and now the municipalities are playing politics with this again. And uh, But this is a very significant issue because the cost, um, well, I guess Surrey, if they want, for example, if Surrey wanted to make a licensing fee of $500, no one's going to operate there. I guess the mayor is going to get what he wants, but... They're not servicing the citizens of Surrey, so we've got a little bit of ways to go here. It's a significant issue. It could, it could impair the, the uh, company's ability to to work, or um, the other consideration is the companies say, "Well, listen, Simi, if you're going to be a driver for us, you're going to have to pay these fees." And yeah. suddenly, if you're going to operate in 12 municipalities, Simi's going to pay 1,200 bucks. And Simi's doing this to make money as a part-time driver. Yeah. Simi's not, you know what I mean? So it, they're not being sensitive, I don't think, to the implications of what this means, because ultimately. At the end of the day, the consumer is going to pay. And oh. when they talk about affordability, they miss the point. Oh, we don't even know what the ICBC rate is going to be yet. So you're talking about all these license fees on top of what your insurance is going to be. <coughs> hmm I mean, that sounds... ICBC uh, scheme. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, they've, I think they've, they're, they're, they're pretty good with that. ICBC, um, it's interesting where they've done it. It's kind of innovative is that um, the insurance cuts in, uh, clicks in when... The, um, when the rideshare driver actually signs on for a ride. So they're covered during that commercial part of the operation. Then when they sign off, it goes back to normal insurance. So 
it's different than a taxi. But, you know, taxis go, well, we pay so much insurance. But then the taxi guys, they're running 24 hours a day. So they have to sort of take that into account. Ride-sharing people aren't, as you know, they're about 18 right. hours a week. Right. Okay. So you're right. This is going to make it cost prohibitive for people. Now, Ian, you're starting to sound a bit discouraged because for a while there was like positive signs. We thought this was actually going well, to happen. Yeah. I, I think it's going to happen. It gets tiring to to continue. It's just like, a, you know, it's like putting out fires. I mean, we, you know, we had this a couple of weeks ago. We had Siri saying, oh boy, we don't want this. And then it became Delta. And they make all these ridiculous uh, comments about ride sharing because they don't know. You know, Lois Jackson doesn't understand the concept of ride-sharing, but she goes out and makes public comment. So you're, we're constantly in the case of trying to correct the record, get the facts out, make it reasonable, uh, help these, these counselors make these decisions. It just gets tiring. I'm, yeah. I know we're going to have ride-sharing. I, I know we are, but it just... You know, come on, you guys. Like, I, I don't understand. Just, what I don't understand about counselors and, and politicians who are speaking out about this is... You know, the regular person will email me all the time to say, I used it in this city. I used it in this city. Are you telling me that all of these counselors, out of curiosity about this thing, have not even tried to use this or see what it's all about in other places? I think <laughs> I think there's some truth to that. I think there are some counselors that have never experienced it. I know there's some provincial politicians that have never experienced it, yet they have very strong opinions on it, and they're largely vested in the politics of the issue. I mean, Lois Jackson went out and was talking about how unsafe. We haven't studied. She goes, we haven't studied this enough. I don't think it's safe. You don't. So these companies have done, mm, I think, something like a billion rides now since the inception of ride sharing in the world. And she has the right to make those kind of comments. So it is. It's, it's inexperience. And, it's, and, uh, and then when it's not inexperience, they just throw stuff out there because, you know, there's the politics of the taxi industry. Uh, so... Do you think we'll it's still, there, yeah, okay, yeah. Do we, yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. Do you think we're still going to get there, or is this going to put a delay? We were thinking that maybe by Christmas, does that still sound realistic to you? Yeah, yeah, I think so, for sure. I mean, and I guess what's going to, you know, what's going to happen is that there is going to be uh, such disappointment in this province, well, in Metro Vancouver initially, if this goes sideways because a bunch of short-sighted politicians, I think that people will put up with this as such a strong expectation and demand and um, by the public for this. I just think that we, this is going to be really tough for the politicians to sort of do stupid things to kill it. So that's why I remain optimistic. But for everybody in behind the scenes is trying to get everything straightened out here. It just gets a bit, <laughs> a bit ridiculous. But we're not going to give up and we're going to get it done. We will see about that, Ian. We're, I, I always say that I won't believe it until I'm actually in the car taking the ride uh, for, you know, for the first time. We're going time. together, Simi, you and me, <laughs> first ride. Thanks, Ian. <laughs> Okay, bye, Simi. That's Ian Tostenson, the president and CEO uh, of Ride Sharing Now BC. He's also, of course, a head of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association, but he has been definitely lobbying for some uh, ride hailing coming to this province for a couple of years now. You know, we haven't talked as much about real estate in the last year or so because there hasn't been a lot of good news to talk about on that front. For a while there, it seemed like this was all we would ever talk about because the numbers were going up, 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 and affordability has always been a problem, it seems like, in the last five years. But now there's some really interesting numbers worth talking about. The Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver is out with their September stats, and they really caught our attention. The number of homes that so were sold rose 4.6% from August over September. And over a year ago, uh, it was up 46%. So why is that? What is happening out there in the market? We thought it was time to get a snapshot of this. Joining us now is Ashley Smith, president of the Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver. Thank you very much for being here. 
Thank you so much, Simi. Thanks for having me. Would you consider these numbers to be positive? Uh, absolutely, they're positive. They, I mean, obviously show a pretty striking contrast to last year. I think the thing we want to emphasize is that while we're 46% uh, year over year in terms of sales, really what we're seeing is ent- re-entering a more normal market, which I think most people, whether you're on the buy side or the sell side, whether you're on the realtor side, is pretty exciting news. Okay, so what, what did you think was most significant about these numbers? Um, I think at the end of the day, what we're seeing is um, a shift in the sales to listing ratio. So um, we're entering a more balanced market in most segments, um, you know, whether you're talking condo, townhouse. Detached is still on the slower side, but you're seeing a slight increase in terms of um, that that ratio. And certainly a number of sales has increased big time. So I think what we're seeing here is some confidence in the marketplace on the buyer's side. Um, and, and on the other end, uh, sellers probably have really come to terms with where the market is at. And now they're just starting to accept it, seeing benchmark prices and being more comfortable that they're making sound decisions in their sales. Right. So do you think for a long time people had held off because they thought, oh, maybe prices are going to go down more? Absolutely. Um, and I think that was on both ends. I think from the the owners and sellers side, it was a, it was a scary time, not really sure what to expect, um, not really sure what the duration of how this market cycle would last. Um, and on the buyer's side, you know, everyone wants a good deal. Um, and, and I think what some folks are starting to see is, you know, the time to get into the market is really when it's not flooded with buyers and competition. Um, so those who are able to get in are, are starting to get in. But that being said, I, d- I don't think we're seeing a huge influx of investor types, so I don't want to give the wrong impression. I think what we're seeing is a lot of end users, a lot of home buyers looking to move, um, and just being more prepared to kind of take the next step. Right. So do you, do you think that means that we did hit some kind of bottom or we found the bottom of buyers and sellers there? Um, we don't like to make predictions, but based on the statistics and, and the reporting we're seeing and, and the fact that we've seen kind of consistent sales numbers over the last several months, I think we've probably seen the bottom in terms of price and number of sales. Don't quote me, um, but it's certainly showing the trend is is moving up, at least in terms of the number of sales. The price points um, are pretty neutral right now. We're still um, seeing a decline in value year over year. Um, And uh, depending on what property type you're seeing, kind of nominal changes um, in sort of month over month values. So that'll be the interesting thing to watch as we move forward. Um, But really, I think what we're seeing here is a much more historically normal, traditional market, which those of us in Vancouver, frankly, haven't seen for a long time. No kidding. So what is selling out there, Ashley? Um, the, the real pickup has been in um, apartment and townhouse sales. Um, so, in, in fact, we're seeing, and when I say apartment, I, I mean condominium. Um, you know, this, this month we saw almost 22% sales to listing ratio. That actually puts it in what we would normally start thinking of as possibly a seller's market territory. Um, last month was slightly lower, but still over 20%. So, it's still really early to call it a seller's market, I think. Um, but that's where the strength is, is in, in the condos. And townhouses is just a little bit behind. And townhouses, actually, we saw the highest um, increase in number of sales. We actually saw an increase of 54% in townhouse sales this year over last year. Um, 
So again, I think what that means is a lot of young people, um, a lot of entry-level types of buyers, uh, families, um, getting into either their first or second homes. It's interesting you say that about the condo market because we've also heard in recent months about developers who were thinking about putting you know, condo projects on hold. That's true. Um, we don't have all of the sort of analytics for, for pre-sale type of, of uh, market activity, but I, I, I'm guesstimating here that part of that is because it's co- probably coming more from an investor mindset, um, uncertainty about where the market might be, and especially having seen such a quick shift um, over the last you know, year and a half. Part of that is also to do with um, certain taxes that have been introduced. And, and, and I think there's still a fear of like with government changing what, you know, what could be next. Right. Um, so I, and it's harder, you know, you are speculating when you're buying for the future, when you're buying for today and you're, you're planning to move in, um, you know, you're wanting to make a sound investment uh, in your home, but you're also going to be using that home and you need a place to live. So it's a, it's a different, type of buyer mindset for sure. It'll be interesting to see where those pre-sales go. But for now, yeah, we are hearing some slowdown that way. Right. So even though, as you mentioned, there's all these taxes, right? The parties are talking about to have more increasing that foreign buyer's tax, speculation tax, regardless, empty homes tax in Vancouver. It's mm-hmm. still there. It, it, the real estate market is showing some signs of life. Absolutely. Yeah, um, we're really happy to see it. And I think it, this is the first time we've seen in a while where um it's, you know, if you, whether you're a seller or a buyer, it, it can be pretty comfortable on both sides of the transaction as long as you're realistic. Is there a particular area that seems to be doing really well? Like other than condos, I'm talking about actually location. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, there's, it's actually been pretty uh, decent across the board. I think you're looking more at price point versus um, right. location. So, so, you know, for example, um Coal Harbor downtown is still pretty slow, but you're looking at much higher price per square foot type of homes, right? Um, so affordability is a factor, and it's relative to the the demographic right. in the in the area. Um, right now, we're kind of seeing some increases or you know decreases in values, really hovering that sort of zero percent, like one point one. So so it, it's it's really kind of we're seeing balance in a lot of these areas minus that luxury end. Are sellers then, do you think, Ashley, also getting the message here? Because earlier there was a disconnect between what sellers thought their property was worth versus what buyers are willing to pay for. But are those numbers kind of coming together now? I think so. And and part of it, I think, has to do with seeing other sales happening and understanding where the prices are. So, you know, if you're in a neighborhood and there hasn't been a sale for several months, you don't really know until, you know, are you going to be the one that's willing to kind of be that guinea pig sale in the area, right? Um, And it's that uncertainty of value, I think, that had home sellers really clinging to last year's prices or two years ago prices. Now that we've kind of seen some of these homes starting to sell, it's, it's just a lot easier to understand where the trends are and where your home fits relative to several of their sales in your neighborhood. All right. It's a long time since we actually heard maybe a little bit of positive news about that. Yeah, Um, exactly. Ashley, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Have a good day. You too. That's Ashley Smith, president of the Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver.
want to take a moment here and tell you about one of the most important religious festivals of the year that is going on right now for Hindu Canadians. It's the Navratri Festival, celebrated in lots of different ways, depending on what part of the South Asian subcontinent you're looking at. So our global news reporter, Sushi Gangdev, spoke to Canadians from the northwestern Indian state of Gujarat about how they are marking the occasion. You might not know it, but for more than 10,000 people in the Lower Mainland, the holiday season has already begun. The Gujarati Society of BC, under the helm of Society President Seema Kanji, is getting ready to host the Hindu festival of Navratri this weekend. Navratri is actually a very fun event. It's um, dancing and food and camaraderie and friendship among people. It is one of the most important festivals for Gujaratis, and so we're trying to keep that tradition alive. Navratri, which started on September 29th, lasts for nine nights. In fact, the word in Sanskrit literally translates to nine nights. It's also known as the Festival of the Goddess, with each night celebrating a different avatar or reincarnation of Durga Mata, the feminine divine. And for people from the northwestern Indian state of Gujarat, it's the biggest time of the year. Traditionally, Gujaratis celebrate Navratri by coming together in the thousands every night to socialize and play with traditional folk dances. It's a folk dance from Gujarat, and it is done in a circular pattern around um, a garbi, which is an altar that's set up in the middle of the hall or gym or school or wherever you're having Navratri. And basically people are honoring the goddess Durga and seeking her blessings as they dance around the altar. That's a description of the folk dance Garba performed in a circle with clapping movements. Another dance is called Dandia Ras, played with partners who hit sticks together in repetitive movements before moving on to the next person. If you've never seen it happening before, it would probably look like chaos, but somehow every person dancing knows exactly what's going on and what to do next. That's because Gujaratis grow up celebrating the festival and playing with these dance forms every year. Ganji's five-year-old daughter, Ayana, will be one of those people who grows up learning the traditions of Gujarat even here in Canada. She says she's been going to Navratri since she was three years old and she loves it. I like going to Garba, doing Gandhya because it's fun to do. I like getting dressed up because I look pretty. GSBC board member Priyanka Patel has also been going to Navratri since she was three, but she's in her 20s now. She was born and brought up in Canada, but her Gujarati heritage is an intrinsic part of her identity, and Navratri has played a big part in that. It's an opportunity for us to firmly establish our own identity in the melting pot of identities that is not only just Vancouver, but Canada in itself. Something that we can say, you know, this is our own. Patel is a professional Bollywood dancer and teacher, but thanks to Navratri, Gujarati folk dances like Garba and Dandia Ras will always be her favorite styles to dance because they're close to her heart. I hope nobody laughs when I say this, but for some reason when I hear the Gujarati music and that rhythm and those words, there's something I just can't verbally describe that I feel inside, almost like my soul, which sounds kind of, you know, cliche, but really, truly it's true. And I feel like, you know, this is me, this is my family, this is my heritage.
Well, Ayana and Patel grew up with a thriving Gujarati community around them and huge Navratri events to visit every year. It hasn't always been like that in the Lower Mainland. 2019 marks 50 years of the Gujarati Society of BC. Kanji says back then in 1969, it was a very different situation. Navratri started actually in the basement of one of our founding members with just a handful of families. Uh, celebrating the event, and now it's thousands of people who attend. Vancouver resident and Gujarati Canadian Jyoti Chande has been around and a part of the GSBC community for 43 of those 50 years. She says when she and her husband moved here, there were only a few hundred attendees, and everything was done and over by midnight every night. Now young people want to stay out dancing until 2 or 3 in the morning. But Chande says that's not necessarily a bad thing. Everybody is ready to dress up, and they dress up very vibrantly. And... Uh, how they dance freely. That is my best part, to see them, to see the family grow. Chande says Gujaratis growing up here won't get the same Navratri experience as they do in India, where the dancing happens without fail every night of the festival. Here, she says, life gets in the way. But at least they get the taste of it, and they know what is our Gujarati culture is. And it is not that sit down and I'll lecture you about what is our Gujarati culture. This is by seeing. There's no doubt about it, Gujaratis feel pride in their unique cultures and heritage. For her part, Ganji says Gujarati culture is beautiful, vast and interesting, and it's open to all. I think it's important for other communities to get to know us, and so we would welcome all people to attend the event and get to know us, get to know what Gujarati people are about and how we contribute to the Canadian uh, fabric. Navratri may be a religious festival, but at the end of the day, Kanji says it's a way for Gujarati Canadians to keep in touch with their heritage, with their culture, and with each other. Just a way of keeping our traditions and culture alive. Lots of people get to meet each other, they form friendships and bonds, and it's the one time where a lot of people come out and you see people for the first time after a whole year. A place where people can get together, pray together, dance together, eat, and bond. Srishti Gangbev, Global News. Well, today we're talking about a couple of big things that have to do with transportation and getting around Metro Vancouver. We've got the Massey Tunnel replacement discussion that is coming up and also ride hailing. That's being discussed at the city of Vancouver today and it's something that's going to be coming up in your city as well. Your local council is also soon going to have to decide how they treat this in their community because, you know, business licenses have to be issued. These decisions have to be made. And the thing is, a lot of people who are going to do this for a living might not necessarily do it full-time. They may be doing it part-time. That's actually the business model that the big companies like Uber and Lyft rely on. But in states like California, that's become an increasingly contentious issue. In fact, in California, they are having the discussion right now. It's quite quite a spirited debate, I would say, about whether or not these are employees or they are independent contractors. Well, the BC Federation of Labor is calling on the province to consider ride-hailing drivers here in BC as employees. And they want to make sure that those drivers' employment rights are protected. So how do we do that? Laird Cronk joins us now, the president of the BC Federation of Labour, to talk more about this. Thank you for being here. Oh, great to be here. Thanks, Simi. Have you been watching kind of what's unfolding in California on this issue? Yeah, I totally have. And look, I'd, I'd like to start by saying it's it's pretty clear ride-hailing is, is coming to BC at uh, some point. And it's to me, it's an exciting time. It's a time for us to show in British Columbia 
that we can get this right the first time, that we can make sure drivers are part of the solution and can also celebrate ride hailing when it comes in. So how do so, we yeah, do around that? North America, uh, sorry, around North America, there's been all sorts of examples of where the Ubers and the Lyfts of the ride hailing world have not treated uh, the drivers, the folks that make the profits for them, um, as employees. They've treated them as contractors. And we've seen up to 53% decrease in the wages of folks in the transportation industry as a result of this. We've seen a, you may remember there was a strike of, in a number of cities around the U.S. Yet, yeah. uh, last year about it. And California recognized it's such a problem that this happened there that they actually did pass legislation about a month ago to make sure that the drivers are respected, that they have minimum employment standards that everybody should be entitled to and is entitled to in BC that works and workers' compensation. Okay, so then how do we do that here in BC? I think it's completely doable. I, these are big multinational companies that are they are coming here with a product, um, a product to um, you know promise safe, uh, affordable, um, accessible transportation, and I think people want that. That's clear. The government said it's coming in, but people also want to know, I think, that the workers are treated fairly. There's room within this model. I mean, there's all sorts of companies in D.C. under the Employment Standards Act that have part-time workers. Uh, if, if your model means you can't treat workers at minimum standards, it's not a proper business model. Yeah, okay, so what would the difference then be to the driver, someone who wants to sign up and do this, whether full-time, part-time, whatever the case may be? Right. So first of all, I should say, I believe the Employment Standards Act in B.C. sufficiently right now has the has the parameters of the definition to ensure that these are employees. What we've what we've said is to the passenger transportation board that's looking at the licensing applications, they should have the right handed companies declare up front whether they're going to attempt to circumvent or whether they're going to live to the employee status. So there's no uncertainty for drivers coming into this. So they don't have to bear the burden of trying to prove what's already there. And, uh, and then they're covered by minimum, you know, minimum wage, minimum employment standards. And a really important one is workers' compensation coverage. Because when you're an employer, you're not covered. If you're an independent contractor, you're not covered by workers' comp. And if you're hurt driving that Uber or Lyft vehicle, I'm not talking about a car accident. I'm talking about maybe an altercation from somebody who's not happy about where you've delivered them in the vehicle. And you lose that job and your day job because you're injured, you're not covered. Right. Okay. So who would pay for that then? Would that be something the driver would pay for? Would that be something the employer pays for? Well, you'd be out of luck if you were an independent contractor, unless you took out your own WCD coverage, which is somewhat limited coverage and would cost extra money. And I mean, it's just not realistic to think that folks that are trying to already augment maybe a part-time job are going to do that. So you're going to put people at risk in the case where they're injured in a non-vehicle accident in, in the course of doing this work. And the reality is they are employees and they should be covered like other workers in the province so that they can also rejoice in ride hailing. It should be a good, exciting time for us to lead the charge and show that British Columbia can lead the charge on how to have, you know, we talk a lot about the gig economy. Yeah. We talk a lot about the green economy and how we make sure it's sustaining jobs and good for workers and good for the environment. This is our opportunity to show that we learn from the experiences around North America and we make sure these workers are treated fairly and inside the large multinational corporation money-making operation, there's room for this. Totally room for this. Right. Now, Laird, I wonder as well, is there a way for WorkSafe BC to provide a unique product for these particular employees? We heard earlier about how ICBC is providing a unique product for the drivers that only kicks in when they're actually at work and using the app. And if they're not, then it's their private insurance, their, their regular insurance. Is there a way to do that with WorkSafe BC as well? 
Well, you know, I, I think WorkSafe would have to answer that question. But first and foremost, the question is, are these drivers, the people that make the profits for the multinationals, are, are they employees or not? And if they are, we already have a perfectly feasible, affordable model for employers um, where they provide that coverage, where they provide that small premium. And there's lots of room within the Uber and Lyft world to, to pay that up front. Right. Is there any of those discussions going on that you know of? Well, I made a submission to the original tripartite committee of the three different um, parties in BC, the Greens, the Liberals, and the NDP, when they were originally looking at this, talking about this issue. And now we've we've looked at the really we've looked at the Passenger Transportation Board, who's looking at licensing, to say, hey, uh, take a look at this. They have a, they have a mandate to ensure that there's um, this is sustainable economic activity, and we want to make sure that. That includes the workers, the drivers, as being also part of this sustainable economy. Somebody, I mean, we know the public wants ride-hailing. We know the government's set to deliver ride-hailing soon. Somebody's got to make sure that the drivers are part of the solution as well, and that's really what we're talking about. Is there any jurisdiction that you think of or that you know of that has done this? Well, we know in um, Toronto right now there is a organizing or unionizing drive by, I believe it's Lyft uh, drivers with, I think it's the UFCW, um, United Food and Commercial Workers Union. I mean, we've got California that now has addressed this issue with actual legislation to say it doesn't make sense to leave these workers out. We want workers to be part of the future and the future um, solutions in our economy, not left to the side, simply for profits of multinationals. Because let's be clear, they're coming in with a product to make money. And our, our job is, okay, the product might be great, people might want it. Uh, that's all good and well, but we got to make sure workers are part of that along the way, not left to the side. All right, Laird, thank you very much for your time on this. Happy to be here. Thanks, Cindy. That is Laird Cronk, the president of the BC Federation of Labor. I mean, as we get closer to ride hailing, there's some concerns being brought up. And for the BC Federation of Labor, it has to do with employees or people who are going to want to sign up to be drivers for Lyft and for Uber. Are they employees or are they independent contractors? We're talking this morning, or today I should say, about a meeting happening this morning at Vancouver City Council. It is still ongoing right now, and they're discussing potential bylaws that ride-hailing drivers would have to adhere to before they can hit the road within the boundaries of the city of Vancouver. We're talking about things like the need for a business license. But here's the thing, it would only be valid in the city of Vancouver, and if it's more than $100, you can imagine how that's really going to start to add up if you need one of those for every municipality you're going to be operating in. They're also considering a congestion tax of $0.30 cents for each pickup and $0.30 cents for each drop-off in a certain zone uh, between 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. Lon LeClaire is a director of transportation for the city of Vancouver, and he explained to the council meeting this morning the rationale behind the congestion charge. We're trying to discourage uh, too many um, vehicles from circulating in a congested area hoping for a pickup. Right. And so the, the idea is to add a, a surcharge uh, in the area and the times of day uh, when we see that congestion to encourage uh, those companies to, or the, op, the drivers, uh, to kind of be other places. And uh, it's one of those things where in many cities, uh, a lot of the experience is that you have a whole bunch of people in the area where you get a lot of pickup activity. All right. So that's one issue. And I don't think most people would have an issue with that. But there's also the part about the business license. And we talked about this with the head of the group Ride Sharing Now for BC, Ian Tossenson. He was on with us earlier in the show. And he said that if the city does this, then it misses the entire point of affordable living in the region. 
the other consideration is the companies say, well, listen, Simi, if you're going to be a driver for us, you're going to have to pay these fees. And yeah. suddenly, if you're going to operate in 12 municipalities, Simi's going to pay 1200 bucks. And Simi's doing this to make money as a part-time driver. Yeah. Simi's not, you know what I mean? So it, they're not being sensitive, I don't think, to the implications. Well, Simi's not going to end up doing that if that's how much it's going to cost. So why is the city of Vancouver thinking about this? So the meeting is still ongoing, as I mentioned, but Vancouver City Councillor Sarah Kirby-Young has stepped out so she can speak to us for a few minutes, and we are glad that she did. Thank you very much for joining us. Hi, Timmy. Glad to, uh, glad to do so. So where are we at then with this discussion, particularly on the business license issue? Well, we're having a lot of discussion at Council. We've had a number of speakers who have come both from ride-sharing uh, companies as well as in, as you mentioned, the Restaurant Association. Um, and what we're hearing is echoing concerns that I have, that the model that's being proposed by staff right now, which, as you said, includes both an annual business license fee as well as a congestion faster pickup and faster drop-off fee um, doesn't have a regional approach to it. And so my concern is that we end up with the same challenges that we've had with taxis, um, where they're going across municipal boundaries and they're not willing to do that. Um, And so if you have somebody, for example, going home from the Granville Entertainment District, like you said, that individual driver has to potentially buy a a license for their vehicle for Vancouver and for Burnaby if they cross there and for Surrey and so on. And that could become really expensive. So then what is the better way of dealing? Is there any kind of alternative for this? Well, I'd rather see, and, and I think this is echoed, because we also received a letter from uh, the mayor, uh, Richard Stewart of Coquitlam, uh, and signed off by several other mayors as well um, in the Tri-Cities area who echoed those concerns. And personally, I'd rather not see a per-vehicle fee. I'd rather see the per-trip fee, um, because I think that is based on actual activity. It's a proven model that we've seen in other jurisdictions. It does generate revenue from the city uh, to make sure that we can manage it. Um, so that's something that I would favor. Um, I think that, honestly, there's a lot of provincial re- regulation that's coming down, and I don't want to see the city over-regulating where we don't need to. I do want to see the city being smart about curbside management and ensuring safe pickup zones and things of that nature, but I don't think we need to be duplicating a lot of what the province is doing. Right, but that's how you feel, Councillor. What about the other councillors? Uh, I think that, that uh, based on the discussion that uh, we've been having at Council this morning, I think that uh, concern is shared by a number of councillors. So I'm sure it's going to be a lively debate and discussion. It's probably not going to be shared by all, but uh, I certainly think based on the questions and the comments that are coming up that I'm not alone. Okay, but what about then you talked about the regional approach then. Why not decide to do that? Why not say we need to get together with the other mayors instead of going our own way? Well, that's exactly what council has asked about. So one of the recommendations in the report says that council directs staff to work with other municipalities in Metro Vancouver and with TransLink to develop an inter-municipal business license for these TNSs. We call them transportation network services. So those are the rideshare companies in common lingo. And so what we're saying is let's not put the cart before the horse and implement $100 vehicle fee, the councillors that are concerned about it, but let's look at expediting those discussions around an inter-municipal license. This would have to go pretty quickly, though, wouldn't it? Because a lot of people were thinking we would get this done and, and on the ground by Christmas. It does need to. It does need to be done quickly. We do need to move quickly, but I, I think that we don't want to do it and have unintended consequences because the entire point is to create um, better service for people um, and not create barriers, so that we have something that actually resembles rideshare and is an affordable um, and safe option for people uh, to overcome the challenges and the lack of service that they have now. All right. So, is that a motion that you will be bringing forward? Like, how is this going to work? Uh, well, I'll, well, uh, council will reconvene back mid afternoon, and then we'll have a discussion and. A, Anticipate there'll be a number of amendments coming on the floor from a, a number of different counselors. So it's always a fun process, and we'll have to work through that. 
<laughs> and I think you're being sarcastic when you say a fun process. <laughs> but do you have confidence, though, Councillor, that this it won't happen the way it's being laid out right now? Because this sounds like it's it's very cumbersome for the person who would like to be a driver for one of these companies. I think it's too I think it's too cumbersome for the drivers, and I think it's not going to deliver the service that we're hoping for that rideshare should deliver ultimately for the customer. Um, and that's really where we have to start. And that's what matters. So I have confidence that I am not supporting this report the way it is. Um, I don't think an outcome number of other counselors are. What the final vote will be, we'll have to wait and see. Oh, we'll be watching. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. That is Sarah Kirby Young, Vancouver City Councillor. And one of the headlines that really caught our attention has to do with what the provincial government just announced in the last hour. It revealed some plans to attract big-time technology jobs to the city of Surrey and the Fraser Valley. They want to market Surrey as the Lower Mainland's second downtown. So we wanted to hear more about this. How does that work? How do they do this? Joining us now, Richard Zussman, our Global News Online legislative reporter. Hi, Richard. Hey, Simi. Okay, so how do they plan on doing this? Yeah, so the first step is bringing in this new hub at uh, Simon Fraser's University of Surrey campus. So there'll be provincial support to bring in a quantum algorithms institute, uh, part of growing up Surrey as this tech hub, uh, try to promote innovation. Uh, but beyond that, the province is insistent that they're working towards this idea, as you mentioned, to make Surrey the second downtown in the lower mainland, obviously second to the downtown in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. All of that would build around the area around King George and 102, uh, where the campus is right now. But obviously, a downtown core would have to be much larger than that. There are lots of questions, though, around transit. So obviously, one of the big questions before Mayor's Council now is this idea of the Surrey Skytrain, uh, moving it on from Surrey LRT, uh, how much of the community needs to be linked to truly make this a hub uh, that connects uh, south of the Fraser to the rest of Metro Vancouver that's right now on the Skytrain line. So those are all the big questions uh, the Premier is grappling with. Horgan was asked about that today, as well as asked about uh, the future of the Massey Tunnel, and he said there's still a lot of unknowns around the Surrey project. We've heard from the province many times there won't be additional money on the table from what has already been given, but they are willing to work with the mayors to figure out the best way to integrate the community. But all of this, Simi, the goal is to build up Surrey, to push innovation. And one of the really important things I think Horgan mentioned as well is, you know, everyone in the Lower Mainland is living with this issue of affordability. And if the province can help bring jobs to where people live, uh, it will help ease some pressures on people's time and people's costs. And instead of everybody commuting downtown Vancouver to work, uh, if there are downtown cores that pop up elsewhere and Surrey is first, uh, then that can alleviate some of the affordability crunch on people. Right. Now, normally I would be very skeptical about announcements like this, I will say, Richard. But I actually, as a very young cub reporter, worked at the Surrey Leader newspaper, and I was at the council meeting where they decided to make that the Surrey downtown area. And it was so skeptical at the time because you're like, (laughs) there's a giant Safeway on that corner, and they had just built the Safeway, and there was a giant furniture store on the other corner, and we just didn't see it. But now, you know, 25 years later, you can really see it. So... 
and when you put that kind of attention into it, it can happen. So when do they plan on, on starting this? Yeah, so I think a lot of the credit has to go to Diane Watts as well, yes. right? As the mayor of Surrey, she pushed hard to build up the new city hall, to build up the new community spaces. All of that is part of making, you know, it a vibrant downtown core. And uh, I forget what the numbers are, but within the next 10 years or so, Surrey will be the largest city in British Columbia. So in terms of timing, uh, there's no specifics here. I listened to the call. I'm looking at the press release. There are no specifics about when they hope this innovation center will be in place, but they are working uh, immediately with the university uh, and investors in order to uh, get it to happen. So I don't know how quick that is. These things, as you know, take time, uh, but it's all sort of uh, steps in the right direction. I know we'll get some clarity on SkyTrain over the next year or so, uh, and then we will get some clarity around innovation from the province and, and the work with SFU you know, down the road as well. But this is something that won't take a year or two. So I mean, right. this will be, again, a long -term. 15, 25 years until we see this. But it's, as Horgan mentioned numerous times, it's about taking those next steps uh, to get to the goal. And that's something that Diane Watts had a vision of a long time ago as the mayor of Surrey. So true. So, I mean, you're talking new Patola Bridge at that point, right? Right, yep. Uh, new SkyTrain or whatever the rapid transit would be, potentially a new Massey Tunnel, something or whatever the replacement is. So you right. can see how that, that'll funnel a lot of change to the suburbs. And obviously a big part of it will be working with developers as well and working with the city of Surrey. And, you know, we could have the same mayor, we could have new mayors. That often changes as well. That changes the conversations around density. But to make this work, obviously we need to see a continuance of uh, larger density buildings being built and that uh, has to count on developers to come forward with those projects. So it's a combination, obviously, of investment from the federal government, provincial government, the municipal government investing in this vision, but also uh, the private sector coming in and investing in that community to build some of the amenities that are needed to make it a true downtown core. All right. They've got a lot of work to do. Richard, thank you. <laughs> they sure do. Thanks, Simi. <laughs> That's Richard Zussman, our Global News online legislative reporter. Well, we're talking about a, a big issue for this election campaign, and that is misinformation. There was a lot of concern heading into this campaign about what's out there on the internet, misinformation, rumors, falsehoods. I mean, it just kind of spreads like wildfire. So how do you spot it? Are you even concerned about it? How do you know what the fake from the real? How do you get all that sorted out? Well, the Canadian Journalism Foundation has some advice today for the public, and they even have a new tool that is here to help if this is something that has been worrying you. Natalie Turvey is with us, the President and Executive Director of the Canadian Journalism Foundation. Natalie, thanks for being here. Hi, Simi. It's great to talk to you today. How big of a concern is this, do you think? huge concern going into the election, certainly, but beyond. Uh, some of the research that the CJF has done shows that 90% of Canadians admit to falling for fake news. And what's worse, fake news stories spread six times faster than the truth. And do we know why that is? Well, part of it has to do with connecting with our emotions. If something confirms your belief or it seems too good to be true or if it makes you angry, then research has shown that people are more likely to share that piece of information. So we look for that kind of visceral feeling and that is what we respond to. Yes, and bad actors prey on that feeling that we're going to have when we encounter those types of images or those headlines online. 
Now, is it because we're not skeptical enough, Natalie? Like, do we need to apply more skepticism to what we're reading? You bet. I mean, that is the essence of our campaign, and it's called Doubt It, Check It, Challenge It. And it plays on something we already have, our intuition or our inner skeptic. And it's really calling on people, if it provokes that emotion, to pause a second before you share it. And with some simple fact-checking techniques and tools, uh, Canadians can empower themselves to confirm the accuracy of that information. Okay, so how easy is this? Because that's the thing, right? A lot of people would read it and they would not even think to question the information on it. They want to believe it. Some of these tools and skills uh, people can do in a matter of 10 or 15 seconds. A reverse image search is a great example. Uh, Looking at the date of a headline, people often trot out stale dated information out of context uh, to sway, you know, to sway opinion. So even looking at the date, we like to say memeing isn't believing. So if it's an attractive meme, take a moment to check that online and see if other sources are writing about this as a credible story or as misinformation. Oh, Natalie, this just isn't as fun. <laughs> right? I mean, that's really what it comes down to for people. It's like they want to believe the craziness. They want to get outraged. And again, that's what, um, you know, perpetrators of misinformation are counting on that. So it's important that Canadians are vigilant so that they can make decisions about the issues that shape our society. All right, let's talk about the first item that you mentioned there, a reverse image search. What is that and how do people do it? So a reverse image search is a matter of right-clicking on an image, and it takes you to a Google function where you can check the veracity of that image, where you can see other examples of where this image was used. And one of the most famous ones is always uh, the hurricane shark that uh, can be trotted out during natural disasters, where you'll see a shark trailing a car um, during a flood. And that's something that's been trotted out for five or six years, but with a simple reverse image search, you can see where that that image has been used before. Right. Okay. And talking about checking the date too, because that's a big one. I find that uh, I've family members even fall for that when they send me stuff and I have to send it back to them and say, did you check the date on this? Yeah. And it's, it's, it's bringing out information that's out of context or as we said, stale dated. And some of our resources say, check the date. It's true for milk and it's true for news. So what is this new tool then that the foundation has come up with? So the CGF has come up with a suite of PSAs uh, engaging high-profile personalities from Global News' own uh, Supriya Devetti to Peter Mansbridge, and the PSAs are cross-generational. We have uh, ASAP Science, YouTube stars involved in the campaign, and uh, Canadian comedy duo The Beaverton also supporting this. So connecting people with recognizable faces and short funny lessons that uh, you can view on the go on your smartphone in a matter of seconds. And they share one tip or trick that Canadians can have in their back pocket when they encounter misinformation. Now, Natalie, do you think this is something that people want to do or do you think they're happy with getting the information that they are? I have no doubt that people want sources of credible information to make decisions about the neighborhoods they live in, the schools they send their kids to, and, you know, the the party leaders that represent their values and their beliefs. I truly believe people want uh, to have access to accurate sources of news and information, especially online. So where can they find out about these tools and the things that you talked about? 
So these tools will live on doubtit.ca, a website, uh, our website uh, for the campaign, and uh, they'll also be launched uh, across social media starting today. We're also supporting the campaign with digital ads on social media, taking the fight against fake news to where it's often most rampant. Do you think, you know, the, the news industry needs to do more here as well to combat these issues? Well, to me, we, we, at the CJF, we feel that this is a collaborative effort. Um, we can't rely on journalists and media organizations alone or lawmakers or the technology platforms. Uh, technology platforms fighting misinformation starts with all of us, and it's going to take a coordinated effort. All right, Natalie, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. Thanks so much, Simi. That's Natalie Turvey, the President and Executive Director of the Canadian Journalism Foundation, talking about the different tools that they have put into place to fight misinformation and falsehoods, uh, particularly during this election campaign. You know, October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and this year's message is a little different when it comes to breast cancer awareness. The BC Cancer Foundation wants you to know that men can get breast cancer too. In fact, this year, about 250 men are actually going to be diagnosed with breast cancer in Canada. So yes, it's rare, But, you know, so much of the message always focuses on women. BC Cancer wants to make sure that men are also aware of the signs and symptoms. If you feel a lump in your breast, and yes, men have breast tissue too, do not ignore it. And that's why our next guest is so important to this discussion. Lori Ricks is with us, a longtime supporter of the BC Cancer Foundation, and also, for many years, was Neil McRae's wife, of course, BC sports legend here in our province. Lori, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. And this is important, obviously, very near and dear to you as well, because tell us what happened with Neil. Well, in 2015, Neil came to me and said, I've got this funny lump on my chest. What do you think it is? And I said, I felt it, and it was about the size of a golf ball. And I said, wow, as a woman, internally, I was quite shocked because there's such good education in our province about self-exam, breast self-exam, awareness of uh, female breast cancer. So immediately as a woman, I was quite shocked, but I didn't want to convey that to him and worry him. But I said, you know, maybe you should go to your GP, get it checked out. And so that's what he did. And he was shocked and I was shocked when the results came back after he had an ultrasound exam that it was breast cancer. Had he been feeling it for a while or was this so he hadn't said anything? That's right. He had felt it for a while. It had been growing, um, but he really didn't think that breast cancer was a possibility for him. So he really thought maybe it's a benign cyst or it's nothing to worry about. But then when it became significant, I think that's when he thought, okay, I need to mention this to somebody. And so if you were surprised, I mean, you've been around the medical community for a long time as well. If you were surprised, what does that say for the general public? Exactly. Exactly. Uh, So many of our friends, when he told the very close group of friends when he was diagnosed, when he said, I've been diagnosed with cancer, they all assumed, because he was in his 60s, it was prostate cancer. Right. And so I was only hearing one side of the conversation, and he would say, no, no, it's not prostate, it's breast. And the stunned silence on the other end of the phone everyone reacted the same way. Was that hard for him then to be constantly explaining this to people as well? Very difficult. Very difficult because it's seen as a women's disease, but it's not. It's a human disease. Men can get it too. It's just that it's not widely known. And so you've obviously been talking about this as well because of Neil. What have you learned in the couple of years of dealing with this as well? 
I guess the most important thing I've learned is if there's something different in your body, you're the one that knows your body the best. If there's something different that you've noticed for a sustained period of time, not just a couple of days, then you just need to go to your doctor and have it checked out. Because you would, if it is something, it probably isn't, but if it is, you'd rather have it dealt with sooner rather than later. The outcomes are way better if something is caught early. So you're the expert of your own body. So you have to pay attention. And men traditionally haven't been known to go to the doctor or want to go to the doctor frequently. Yeah. Um, and Neil was no different. So I think men just need to know that it's okay. Go to the doctor. It could be scary, but it could be nothing. And if it is something scary, then you can get on top of it quicker. That's a big challenge, though, I think, for a lot of significant others, though, right? Especially for when it comes to men is how do you convince them that, you know what, you're not bothering the doctor. This is like, just go get this checked out, that it's a good precaution. Like, how how did you have that discussion with him? Well, um, I don't want to use the word nagging, but <laughs> I think I think there is something to be said for repetition of messages. And, um, and yeah, I mean, it, it was something that we had to come to grips with for sure. Um, and he was more aware and his, uh, you know, family and friends were more aware after right. that of, of the need to get on things. Um, and now I'm hoping that I can make the general public aware that that is something that uh, you need to pay attention to if you're a man or a woman. And do you, have you ever, have you talked to men who have also, other men who've had this diagnosis? I mean, is it difficult for them to talk about that? It is difficult. Um, Neil's been gone two and a half years now. I'd like to think that in that time, maybe people are a little bit more comfortable or a little bit more open. I know that one reason why Neil kept it private is he felt a little embarrassed, which is a little strange, but because it's seen as a woman's disease and men don't think or didn't think they could get it. it, it was a bit of an odd feeling for him. And so he wanted to keep it private. So I'm hoping by raising awareness, it will mean that men will not feel uncomfortable or not feel ashamed or embarrassed of something that's going on in their breast area. I think, Laura, you just made such a great point about this because when we think of Neil McRae and what we knew about Neil McRae, being embarrassed about anything does not come to mind. Right. And to think that this disease embarrassed him. Imagine how that is for anybody else who isn't Neil McRae. Exactly. Exactly. No, I, I, yes, definitely. I think I'm hoping things are changing. Things take a while to change, I know, but I'm hoping by bringing awareness to this that not only will men realize that they can get this, but also you don't need to be embarrassed or ashamed of anything that's happening in your body. It's a medical issue and it needs to be dealt with by a doctor. And the messaging has been so great uh, aimed at women, explaining to them about self-checking and and for lumps. How are men supposed to check for this? What should they be aware of? Exactly the same. When you're in the shower, you know, just have a feel around when you're soaping yourself up and just see if there's anything unusual. For men, it can be actually quite a bit easier because they don't have as much breast tissue as women typically do. So it would be easier to feel lumps generally, um, getting on them quicker. So, yeah, basically it's just being aware and feeling a lump. And if you feel a lump and it's there for a period of time, or especially if it gets larger, definitely see your doctor. Right. So that's something they just, they need to check. And that's, I guess for men, that's a different message because that's, they can't do that with prostate cancer. They can't do that with other things, but they need to be more proactive when it comes to this particular type of cancer. Exactly. And really any lump that's an odd lump in your body, you should have checked out no matter where it is, but especially if it's in your breast, it could be something. Yeah. Do you think that message is getting across to people? 
I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> I hope I hope it's getting out there. I really do. I know that that's what, you know, it's Breast Cancer Awareness Month. We've just started and I'm hoping that um, by, you know, being out there in the media and, and give, getting this message out, that people are hearing it. I always find that people, they want to just dismiss it. They want to think, oh, that's not it. It's just fine. It's not cancer. It's something else. Because you think... It can't possibly happen to you. That's exactly what Neil thought. He definitely thought it was something else. Right. Uh, well, what's the message then, Lori, um, before you leave us today? Like, what is it that you want to put out there for people? I guess I just want people to be aware of their own bodies. And I want men to know that breast cancer is not a women's issue. It's not a women's, just a women's disease. It's a human being disease. And if Neil can get it, anybody can get it. And unfortunately, his was stage three because he did let it go quite some time before he got it checked out. So get on it early and know your own body. I think it's going to surprise a lot of people, a lot of men in particular, to hear that today for sure. So men out there and women out there as well, uh, if you want to pass that message, and maybe not nagging, as Lori said, because we (laughs) hate to do that. We hate to use that word. But check out their website. It is uh, bccancerfoundation.com. Lori, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much.